BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers. All right, guys, welcome to the Full Blast Podcast. And with me is Dr. Laren Thomas. Uh, you know you know him from Knife Engineering, his great book. And we're going to talk about his new book coming out. But before we do that, let's talk about our sponsors. This podcast is sponsored by Broadback Ironworks, makers of the 2x72 grinder. It's a great machine if you are a knife maker, if you are a metal worker, if you are trying to remove material, if you're a woodworker. Uh, they're awesome. 2x72 grinders are really great, and you'll find them to be incredibly helpful. And the Broadback Ironworks 2x72 is very versatile. They have awesome attachments. Um, it's very intuitive. And if you go to broadbackironworks.com, you have some savings. You can put in Knife Talk 200, and it'll give you $200 off their grinder packages. And you can put in Knife Talk 100, and it'll get you $100 off their sharpening system, surface belt grinder, leather sewing machine. I would highly recommend uh, checking out uh, following them on Instagram, seeing what they have. And when blade shows come around, they always have some sales. So definitely go check out Broadback Ironworks. Uh, they're a great company. And I interviewed them last year, and they're just fantastic. So go check out uh, Broadback Ironworks. Next is Evenheat. Evenheat is the manufacturer of the finest heat treat ovens available. To go find your next oven, go to evenheat-kiln.com. I uh, use Evenheat. Laren Thomas uses an even look at that. He was he, he's he's sneaking it. You feel free to hop in anytime. <laughs> Dr. Thomas, I'm telling you, anything you have to say about any of my sponsors, feel free. Yeah, even, I'm a I'm a PhD metallurgist. I am a world expert in heat treating. And I use an even heat. I just bought a new one. Actually, I used an LB twenty two and a half and I upgraded to the KF. I'm going to make even heat mad if I get this wrong. That's the higher temperature model. So the chamber is a little bit smaller, uh, but it gets hotter. So it goes up to 2400 instead of 2200, which normally you don't need. But I, you know, I heat treat a wide range of stuff for knife steel nerds. So I needed the temperature. What else is there to say, guys? If Dr. Larry Thomas is, use, is swearing by his even heat, what else is there to say? So go to evenheat-kiln.com, check out what they have. They also have ovens that don't go up to 2400 degrees so you can whatever you want the lb series is great because there's no coils in the back so if you're worried about your knives are too long you don't want them too close to the coils the lb series is what you got the solid state drive you got the tap control get yourself an even heat stop playing 
I, he said it all. I had no much more to say, but then the, the, even heat or stop playing. It's a, that's a, that's it. Next is or Nordic Edge. That's Nordic underscore Edge on Instagram. Nordic Edge are makers of pro tools for knife makers. They're in Australia. Uh, these are the guys behind the original screw on file guide. I have one and I love it. It's my number one file guide. I love that file guide. They it's made from non magnetic stainless steel. It won't rust. Steel dust won't stick to it. And uh, they've been making stuff for knife makers in Australia since 2015. They're in Australia. They also, besides selling knife making equipment and steels and all that, they also they also teach classes. So blacksmithing classes, bladesmithing classes, they're um, outstanding. So go check out what they have. Go to nordicedge.com.au. And if you're United States and you're thinking, well, I know I need a file guide, but my I'm making these monstrous knives, monstrous swords that need a big file guide. They make the big Mert. That's the file guide with Mert Tansu. And at knifekits.com, they're selling them. It's big, wide, and it's it looks, frankly, it's just about the size of Mert Tansu. Mert Tansu is a, a big dude. These file guides are perfect if you're a big dude and you need a big file guide. So go check out what's going on over at nordicedge.com.au. Next is my friends at Trojan Horse Forge. Trojan Horse Forge are the makers of the stable, ra- stable rail knife finishing vice and more. They have more coming along. They have more products coming along, but I... I swear by this stable rail knife finishing vice. They're built in the heart of Texas. Their vice is designed to take your handle finishing to a whole new level, but not just your handle finishing, your hand sanding. They have plates that um, have rubber, and it supports your knife, and you can hand sand with comfort. And if you have a kukri, no problem. You can turn the, you can you can actually move the plate. If you have an integral bolster, you can move the plate so it uh, accepts the, the bolster. You can do a distal taper. It's got pins, so you can... They figured it all out. Those guys figured out how to get you squared away. So if you go to TrojanHorseForge.com, definitely check out their their stable rail knife finishing vice. And when it comes to finishing off the handle, it moves 360 degrees around. It is really dynamite. Guys like Will Stelter and Neil Camomora and Jason Knight and and Ben Snur and me and and Moreco and all these guys, they all have the stable rail knife finishing vice. If it's good enough for them, it's good enough for you. And they have payment plans available. If payment plans are available or nice, because you got someone who's a little nervous. Someone's a little bit watching the credit card bills every month. Eh, a little bit here, a little bit here. No one knows a thing. So go to go to TrojanHorseForge.com. And um, definitely, they're great. Outstanding. Fantastic. Love it. I can't get enough of it. Thank you very much. Next is Total Boat. Total Boat are the makers of paints, adhesives, primers, polishing compounds. For boaters and DIYers, understand that you need your projects to go smoothly. That's why they're constantly finding ways to create uh, their original products better, easier to use, more sustainable, less expensive. I love their products. I've been using their their epoxies strictly for knife scales and for hidden tang knives, for full tang knives, and it's great. And if you're one like me and you want to dye your hand, your epoxy, they sell dyes that are exact to the um, that epoxy, so you can dye without fear. Definitely do that. So definitely check out their two-part epoxy. You can check out their UV cure resin. If you got a little hole somewhere, you know, fill up a little hole, you put a little bit on there, a little cracky poo, you put a little bit in there, hit it with the UV light, bingo, bango, bongo, you're all squared away. <laughs> Guys like Keith Deese and Derek from Alden, Keith Johnson, Keith Mitchell, they're all using Total Boat. Even Jimmy Dress is using Total Boat. So here's a new thing. It's not totalboat.com. It's totalboat.com, but if there's going a link in the pro, in the show notes, for totalboat.com slash full blast, and you're going to get a discount if you use that link. So totalboat.com dash full blast. It helps support me as a, on the podcast. So if you want to help figure out a way to help support me, go buy your total boat through this link, totalboat.com dot 
totalboat.com slash full blast. And the, the link is also in the show notes, as is all the, the links to everything, all the sponsors and all the uh, giveaways and stuff like that. Next is I just finished another knife, an eight inch K tip with a Baker Forge uh, and tool steel. It's awesome. It was Firestorm uh, Gomai. It had a copper shim. It had an 80 CRV2 and then it had a. I had a jacket of uh, pattern welded steel. Man, this stuff is dynamite. And if you ch- oh, don't bl- don't trust me, go check out what they got going on. Their steel is awesome. It's super easy to use. If you go to bakerforge.com, that's Bakerforge and Tool on Instagram, you can see all the different things that they have, different types of steels, different types of all sorts of Q mines and go mines and bronze mines and all this, that, and the other thing. And I'll tell you what, you want some razzle dazzle in your life? Go get yourself some of that exotic steel. They do a great job. I've been using it now and all the material, it heat treats easy. It's easy to use. Uh, it's not, un, it's not, it's not, it seems like it's very complicated, but it's not. And I would highly suggest giving it a try. And if you go to bakerforge.com and then put in the promo code full blast, you're going to get 10% off your order. And when you're finished heat treating and making this beautiful knife, you got to etch it in something. And they sent me something. The boys sent me something. They sent me a jug of gator piss. And let me tell you, I've been making jokes about gator piss for the past number of episodes. The stuff is legit. The stuff is legit. I, I um, was really shocked at how great it was. It's um, their own you know, um, combination of ferric chloride and water. It's their own, com- it's their own concoction of, for an etching and it's ready to go. So definitely go check out what they got. Go check out that bigger forge stuff, the steel and the, uh, gator piss. And if you are in Europe and you want to, you want to, I don't know why you wouldn't want a gator piss in Europe, but you get yourself some gator piss, go to DIYEurope.eu. They're the distributor of Gator Piss in the EU, and uh, Matt over there is he's hurdle made hurdles of he come th- over the hurdles of shipping acid and 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 all that etchants and set up a manufacturing distribution in the Netherlands. So go to DIYEurope.eu, get yourself a bottle of Gator Piss, and it's the only company in Europe that's got Gator Piss. And frankly, I've said it once, I've said it twice, I've said it three times. They don't even know what an alligator is down in, in, in Europe, so don't worry about that. Go get your, but they do know what piss is, so go get yourself some of that Gator Piss over BakerForge.com and EU DIY Europe, you know what I'm saying? And last but not least, last but not least, I have to thank uh, my friends at Maritime Knife Supply, that's MaritimeKnifeSupply.ca. If you're a knife maker and you're in Canada or the United States, you need to get squared away. Go get yourself some of that, um, get yourself some of that uh, Maritime Knife Supply. And I, it's interesting. Every time I post or I talk about Maritime Knife Supply on this podcast or on Knife Talk, I'll get a message from, from uh, Lawrence Lake in regards to what he has, what he doesn't have. He's got some new hex bar in. For uh, if you want to do them integrals with a with a hex bolster, he got that. He's got belts, abrasives, all the stuff you're going to need to get yourself stocked or resupplied. If you're United States, it's just as fast as you get it anywhere else. And if you need something, he will get it for you. I was talking about demagnetizers on the podcast, and he says I can get them for you. I also said on this podcast he has demagnetizers. He doesn't have them, but he can get them for you. So this is the kind of guy he is. If you need something. And you reach out to him and say, I need something, he will get it for you. So go to MaritimeKnifeSupply.com and uh, get yourself some of that. And all the TR Maker equipment is there. And my next guest book, Knife Engineering, Knife Engineering, Steel, Heat Treating, and Geometry by Dr. Laren Thomas' book is in stock at Maritime Knife Supply. 
Mm, nice one. Nice pull. And without any further ado, my guest is Dr. Laren Thomas. He's the man. He's a doctor. He's Mr. Heat Treatment. He's, he's the creator and designer and, and chemist behind MagnaCut and other steels. Dr. Laren Thomas, what's going on? Well, I already uh, gave the wrong model for even heat. It's the KO. That's okay. the high temperature model. <laughs> All right. Well, you know, these things, listen, this is live and, you know, we don't edit. So don't worry about that. These guys don't worry about that. It's two letters. How are you supposed to remember this? <laughs> well, the first, how have you been number one? Uh, I've been great. Things couldn't be better for me. So, uh, you know, I'm just doing my thing, uh, working on steel, doing my YouTube, my website. I've been working on, on a new book for a long time. Uh, I mean, things are awesome. Before we talk about your new book, mm -hmm. the first thing I want to do is I want to apologize to you. All right. I want to apologize to you. Had you on Knife Talk a couple times, we had a good time. We had a real mm -hmm. good time. And you mm -hmm. were, I mean, like those episodes of you on Knife Talk were like people that, you know, when we do these podcasts, I try to make it so you don't have to take a pen and pencil. Like, I don't mm -hmm. want you to listen to this and have to like listen back. Like I want them to, I see podcasts more as keeping you company. Your podcasts on Knife Talk were the most like written, people were taking notes. Oh, and no. one thing I did because I feel the need to, I feel the need to give the listener something is I asked you something and I, I asked you one, after we'd gone through questions of like that, I said, hey, so what do you think, what's the best recipe for AEBL, heat treating AEBL? Uh -huh. And you were very polite and you were very diplomatic in your response. And I thought to myself like, ah, I could have just given us like, you know, do this, that, and the other thing. And then when I got your book, Knife Engineering, Geometry and Heat Treating Steel, I realized all the recipes in that book with the ranges. And what I want to apologize for is I want to apologize because there are so many ranges in mm. heat treating steels that there isn't just one answer. There isn't just one answer. And I put you on the spot on that show and, and, and I want to apologize for doing that. <laughs> you don't need to apologize. Uh, but, you know, and I can go in a lot of directions. One thing is for a lot of knife makers, what they want is just tell me what to do. Right. So it's like, uh, you know, don't give me caveats. Don't tell me if this, if that. Just like write it down. Tell me what to do and then I'll go do it. And that's fine. You know, some things you want to get into more in depth. Some things you don't. Maybe you'll want to get into the intricacies of heat treatment later. You know, so uh, guys that follow recipes are better than the guys that get creative to save money. Oh, I'll say. <laughs> so the number one question about heat treating is, how can I do this cheaper by taking shortcuts? And what right. shortcuts can I take? And it, it, in some cases, there are shortcuts you can take, but it's usually the wrong ones that they're trying to take. It's interesting that you say that because I just recently posted, I try not to do too many tip things. When I try to post about my work, I'm kind of focusing in my mind and focusing on my customers to kind of give them an idea of what's going on in the shop. So I did a, a serrated knife and I showed how I do the serrations and it took me a long time to kind of get to a comfortable position where I can make a serrated knife very uh, easily, but also it's very, it, the performance is very good and it does very well. The questions that I, the questions that I got were not how do you do it, how do you get into the position, or what are the you know I'm, I pretty much gave you all you need to know when you when it comes to how you do serrations. The guy mm -hmm. says, "What sizes of contact wheel to use?" And I was like, "Ah, eh, it's not really the right answer question because it's like 
it's a ratio of radiuses and spacing, and it's not just like a right answer. So it made me realize that I did the same thing to you with the uh, give me a recipe for AEBL. Yeah, and so then on the other end, there are the caveats and the if thises and the if thats. And, you know, so you can heat treat AEBL from 57 to 64 Rockwell, you know, and so you can get into all the, the ways you can get to those different hardness points, in which cases might you want different hardness. So, you know, you can have multiple optimal heat treatments depending on if you're using cryo or not, you know, if you're making a super thin kitchen knife versus a big chopper. And so, you know, sometimes it's annoying when you talk to experts, you know, you'll see experts testifying in Congress or, you know, talking to groups of people and they they refuse to give you a straight answer. You're like, you're an expert. Why can't you just give me a straight answer? You know, it's because you know the 500 reasons why not to give one answer versus another. And so sometimes as a like communicator of science or information, you you have to pick where you're going to give more information. And that's going to depend on your audience, what you're talking about, blah, 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 blah. So maybe you caught me off guard with that particular question. I don't remember back that far. But. I remember, well, I remember what I, I know what I was doing. What I was doing was just trying to give a fat crumb to the audience to, you know, in order to help boost sales of the book. However, I have a feeling that sales of, of knife engineering have been amazing. Yeah, the book has sold incredibly well. So, uh, my, my goal was a thousand copies. I said, if I sold 500, I would call it a success. It wasn't a waste of time. A thousand, uh, we've reached my goal. It has sold, you know, incredibly well. Well, the book has sold, I don't know if I should give an exact number, but it has sold a a multiple greater than that. So (laughs) I've sold many, many copies and I've gotten a lot of good feedback. A lot of people know me as the author of Knife Engineering and, uh, you know, the reviews on Amazon are amazing. So, you know, my biggest fear was people would, would buy the book and say, I didn't understand any of this. It was a waste of money. And m- maybe people have not understood it and just not told me. But the reviews have been great. Well, I mean, there are levels to people's knife making. I mean, there mm-hmm. are people like, you know, your our friend Mareko Mamasi, who's, in, uh, who's well spoken about in your new book we're mm-hmm. going to talk about. Mm-hmm who are really who could sit down and digest the chemistry of it and then they're like lunkheads like me who really can't or don't really I mean can't let's say the word can't they <laughs> can't I won't this can't and I think that um what I've been doing is I've been we've all been pushing it and I'm amazed at how thorough it is but you do you have like a recipe book in the back with almost every steel and every temperature for annealing, for forging, for heat treating, for, for tempering, to give you the opt and, and the guidelines in which to get your steel at the right rock well that you want it to, which is pretty remarkable. Yeah, well, I, I had to heat treat a bunch of steel to be able to deliver that. Now, you know, there were a few steels where I hadn't worked with them and just had to go off of data sheets. But I also learned that knife makers don't know how to use data sheets or they don't even know to look for them. Right. Uh, and so, yeah, knife engineering, there's just a huge section in the back, which is just dumbed down instructions for how to heat treat steel. Oh, so you, I, you, I mean, your book has changed uh, the way I heat treat two steels. Like, and now, and the results have been remarkable. And awesome. now, anytime, I mean, your book is right next to the oven. I mean, not not close to going to get it burned up, but I oh, have you it. You can so, burn it and just buy more copies. 
Dick, look at you. <laughs> look at you. I'm, uh, planned obsolescence in the, in, the, in the book industry. I'm 100% with you. But uh, no, every time now that I look at heat treating steels, the first thing I do is I'll hear, or like if I'm heat treating something that a friend of mine told me, here's what you do, I'll cross check it with knife engineering. And then I'll probably air closer to what you're talking about than what I've heard. Yeah, well, one thing you learn when you're a professional in an area is what are the important parameters? What are the big mistakes versus small mistakes? You know, if someone shows me their heat treatment of AEBL, for example, you know, it's a steel I know pretty well. You know, there are going to be things where I'm like, uh, it's not exactly how I would do it, but like it's going to result in mostly the same thing versus, oh, that is a, a really big problem. You need to change that right now. You know, so <laughs> there's there's a range. What do you think the biggest obstacle that most modern day current knife makers, what do you think that their biggest obstacle is that you're, that you're noticing in terms of heat treatment? For heat treatment, a lot of it, like I said, is going cheap and heat treating in a forge. Now I understand, you know, the cost of furnaces goes up every year, just like everything else. Uh, but most guys heat treating in a forge overheat the steel most of them and uh it's just so frequent e even some you know like long tenured knife makers it's just really hard not to overheat the steel so i did this study a year or two back where i i came up with a foolproof method for heat treating in a forge and i contacted a knife maker youtuber and i'm like hey i want to show that this heat treatment is foolproof can you like heat treat some steel in your forge and send it to me and I'll test the hardness and the toughness. And he sent it to me and it was overheated. <laughs> so I, I couldn't, I couldn't show that this, this method was foolproof because he had managed to mess it up. <laughs> so like what he had done is, uh, so I, I did thermal cycling so that all you have to do is hit non-magnetic and then quench. Right. But he checked with a magnet it was non-magnetic and then he went back in and like tried to heat it back up to where it was before and he overshot so just when you have a furnace you just you set the furnace to what i say in my book or in a data sheet or whatever you know you set it to 1475 1925 whatever and it's going to be there every single time and after you dial in your heat treatment it's going to be good every single time and so, yeah, overheating is the number one problem. Even with a furnace, sometimes people will over-austenitize. So I'll try to make this simple. But if you increase your austenitizing temperature, the high temperature before quenching, your hardness goes up, right? The hotter you go, the harder the steel is. If you go too hot, especially with stainless steels and high-carbon tool steels, it will start to go down. So you'll hit a peak you know, let's say 65, 66 Rockwell. And if you keep going hotter, it'll start going down 64, 63, 62. And the knife makers will say, well, that's fine. I'll just temper it less. 62 as quenched, that was fine. I'll just temper less and get my same 60 I was targeting. But if you go too hot, the steel is worse. You will have extra retained austenite and you'll read 60 Rockwell, but the knife will deform. You'll get edge rolling like it's 55 Rockwell, we'll hmm. say, just making up numbers. And so that is one of the biggest issues, and it happens semi-frequently. 
that someone will email me something like this. So overheating, number one problem, I would say. So just some of, some of our listeners aren't knife makers. Mm-hmm. And I just want to kind of give an explanation. I've, um, I've had to explain what heat treating is to you know, my customers. And I've tried okay. to figure out a way to make it as easy as possible, understandable as possible. And this is something that I've wanted to do is to run it by you to see if this is an acceptable uh, simile, sim- <laughs> uh, you know, uh, an acceptable uh, way of explaining it. Okay. So right. if you're heat treating a knife, what you're doing is you're bringing the temperature up to this critical temperature where the iron carbides go into solution. When mm-hmm. I was younger and I heard that, I didn't understand what it meant. Mm-hmm. And then that's that Critical, that critical temperature is referred to as austenite. It, it, it converts the carbon, iron carbides into austenite. And then you quench it, and then the austenite converts to martensite. Now, what I explain, and then that's how your knife gets hard, or your steel gets hard. You know, mm-hmm. that whole system that's part of the heat treating system, and then you temper it to kind of soften it back and blah, blah, blah. The way I've described it to non-science uh, people is if you take a... a a creme brulee you know what creme brulee is right mm-hmm. the dessert and you take the sugar and you sprinkle the sugar on top that if you think about the sugar at that point the sugar has no connection between the grains and that sugar is the iron carbides you put you sprinkle it on and then you bring the torch and there's a critical temperature where the sugar goes into solution and becomes a homogeneous puddle and that would be the austenite. And then as it cools, it converts from austenite to martensite. And then you can go through with your spoon. And then that is, creates that crystal structure, delicious crystal structure that makes your knife hard. Does that sound like an acceptable uh, scientific food reasoning on heat treatment to a certain degree or part of it? Hmm, I may not know enough about creme brulee. <laughs> I, I will, That's uh... fine. I will give a couple of uh, corrections. Okay. okay. Go ahead, so you please. Said, you said the iron carbide turns into austenite. Uh, it is true that the carbide dissolves and the carbon goes in solution. And uh, in solution is easy to explain, like you said, even just like stirring salt or sugar into water. You know, you're you're just putting something which is solid and it is going into solution either in a liquid or in the case of solid steel, you can even go in solution in a solid. Uh, So the transformation that occurs is from ferrite to austenite. So ferrite is normal, like room temperature iron. It has a certain arrangement of iron atoms, which is too much to get into if you're explaining to a total layman. Then it transforms to austenite. The carbide has dissolved and the carbon is in solution. And then during rapid quenching, it transforms to martensite. One simple way of explaining martensite is just that you're locking in the carbon. So if you can get carbon into solution in ferrite, it makes the ferrite much stronger. If you could have a high carbon iron with no carbide, it would be really strong. Carbon is really good at increasing the strength of iron, but it doesn't want to be there. It likes to come out. Ferrite has a really low solubility for carbon. So, you know, it's like you're adding sugar to water. You can't get it to stir in. There's just always solid sugar. Right. Uh, So when you quench rapidly, it locks in that carbon. And martensite is like ferrite. It's just distorted by the carbon. They're very similar phases, in fact. And so, you know, this is more than you would tell uh, this hypothetical person who who knows nothing. I feel like the creme brulee thing is very very, uh, approachable. Mm Mm-hmm. I love that. I love that one. Maybe I'm not using the right terminology, but I think it's the same thing almost. 
They're yeah, wrong? I think the creme brulee thing works. I just I don't know the mechanisms of the solidification of creme brulee. So I, as a layman who knows well, nothing about sugar, creme really, brulee, it's the sugar really. It's not the f- custard. Mm-hmm. The custard doesn't do nothing. The custard okay. stays there. It's just the, it's really the, about the sugar mm-hmm. going into solution and then turning into a crystal. I got it. I I mean it it's it works for me. I mean, is it? Is it the Dr. Laren Thomas approved uh, <laughs> example? It, it's up to for. Eh, I don't even know if it's up to me. I think that was a no. I think it was a very polite no. You're not right. I, I I don't hate it, but one thing I see in a lot of science communication, like if you turn on like a science podcast or something, right? Uh, they they like to use analogies, and as someone who doesn't completely understand the science of what they're discussing, it can give you some understanding. But when you're an expert what you learn is that these analogies often fall down or they're not exactly right. And sometimes I think if we just explain things in simple terms, we can use the real science without getting into analogies and still explain things, if that makes sense. So I think think analogies can be helpful, especially as a starting point, you know, like give the creme brulee explanation. And then as the next step, you say, now I'm going to explain what happens in simple terms in the real steel. And you can think back to the analogy and you might even point out like, okay, this is where the analogy is different from reality. And then that gives them a better understanding. Like, okay, I I see where the analogy doesn't work. And now I understand what's going on. Look at you helping me out. You're like a real doctor helping me out here. (laughs) Well, help me out when I need you. You're helping me out when I need you. Uh, teaching is is different than learning, as you know. You know, some of my smartest professors in college, I didn't understand a single thing they ever said to me, because they learned things easily, and they weren't good teachers. They just weren't. You know, they they couldn't translate things that were in their brain into words for a novice. And just like you said, you know, let's back up and explain how heat treating works. Depending on your audience and the level where you are, you sometimes forget to introduce basic concepts. It's like, okay, I'm going to jump to this level, you know, a six out of 10 knife steel knowledge, when really you were at a two and I went too far. You know, well, I, I, I forgot to introduce some things. No, know? I, well, here's the thing is I'm like a podcasting nerd and I feel as though I feel you, you are to steal as I am to, to the audio experience. And I really try to like make everything as understandable as possible. I try to make this particular podcast standalone episode. So you don't have to have a lot of backstory and stuff like that. So sometimes I get a little bit uh, OCD about like backing things up a bit. Mm-hmm. But I have, I have fallen into this trap before. Where I'm like, okay, there's so much meat I want to get into for this YouTube video or this article or whatever. I just don't have time to introduce every concept right. for this. Right. And it, it's frustrating because if you're trying to build a big audience or you want a big YouTube video, it's the most general, most basic ones that can go big. And if I want to talk about the intricacies of K390 steel versus CPM10V steel, it's just not going to be a general audience video. And so, yeah. It it can be challenging. How are the how is the YouTube channel going? My YouTube channel is going really well. I try to do a video per month, which I have mostly held to. I feel like my audience participation in terms of comments, well, it's definitely much higher for YouTube, but also in general more positive on YouTube. I think the reason is when you are speaking to an audience, it's much more personal. You know, I'm a real person. I'm Laren. 
I like steel. We're learning about steel together. I'm teaching you some things. As opposed to writing, which is just so impersonal. Often, It's really hard to put your personality, your feelings into the written word, which we can get into more with the new book. Uh, and it's just so, yeah, when it's me there either talking or my face is there, it's much more personal. And it it is there's a psychological barrier you have to get past to then criticize this real person, if that makes sense. A hundred percent. No, there's a, there's a, I would think that in, in your line of work and your, with your reputation in the knife making community, and I would think that there is a lot more, you'd probably get more criticism than, than others. I'd say it has slowed down over the past year or two, but I have dealt with some in the past. I have pissed off people, uh, you know, by treading into, sacred cows or even random stuff like i think we discussed on knife talk one of the biggest controversies ever was uh sharpening with a grinder and uh so you know so many people are like i've sharpened my knives with a grinder for 35 years and never had a customer complaint right and so they just get really mad especially when you go on and say like this is not the optimal way and you're trying to sell knives with that method you know there's a defensiveness right that is generated and i understand you know but i I don't have to uh to take the vitriol either well i mean i mean i would think that after your first book knife engineering came out i think that probably quenched a lot of uh tempers i would imagine i hate i'm so mad at myself for using both those (laughs) i'm so mad at myself for using that terrible terrible uh pun but i would think that you know that that gave you a lot more credibility in the community wouldn't wouldn't you say Yeah, I think, you know, as I've been around, uh, it's been a little over five years now since I started Knife Steel Nerds, the website. Yeah, I think, you know, you you develop more of a reputation, more respect, and people give you more of the benefit of the doubt. Or if they're going to criticize you publicly, they tread a little more lightly. And, you know, there are pros and cons to that. You know, everyone should be able to accept constructive criticism. But it's also nice when there are fewer trolls. And yeah. every once in a while, there's someone who just, you know, decided you're too big for your britches and wants to take you down. But, right. you know, there are just, you know, there are a-holes out there. So, Well, that's for, you, you said it here. Um, tell me about the new book. The new mm-hmm. book, you sent me uh, the PFD, the PDF, mm-hmm. Story of Knife Steel, uh, Innovators behind modern Damascus and super steels. Tell me how this book is coming. Yeah, so the book is supposed to come out in a couple weeks. So wow. Oh, hopefully we can get it out. You know, it'd be it'd be nicer if it were out already before the interview. But just all the listeners are going to have to remember to go check again. Uh, for don't the book worry. In a couple. Weeks. I got you. I got you on this book. I, when they come out, don't worry about that. I got you on this. I got you on knife talk. You don't worry about that. We're we're in the, we're on the <laughs> Doctor Thomas train. Don't worry about that. So the book is not about me. Uh, there, there's like a paragraph or two on Magna Cut, but the book is in many ways more personal than other things I've written. Well, the book is about the history of knife steel metallurgy and the history of knife makers and knife companies, how they've used steel, how they've heat treated steel, how they selected steels. Uh, and so, you know, this is the two major groups that resulted in my passions, right? Knife makers, knife companies, and metallurgists. 
those are the two communities that join together and make Laren. And so I get to write about their history, the things that interested me in many ways. And I think it's a, you know, it's a love letter to the history, to the innovators, to the people who generated this amazing group that we get to be a part of. So that, that to me is how I view the book. What's interesting to me is I was reading the introduction and you were saying that it, you weren't, you don't consider yourself a historian. And it was almost as if you kind of fell into writing this as your second book. Like, it's almost as if, like, you didn't expect to be writing this book to a certain degree. Oh, yeah. Knife Engineering was the only book I was ever going to (laughs) write. Right. So this is a departure, but it's also, it doesn't seem like that much. It seems like a very approachable next step because Knife Steel Engineering is about the steel in and of itself. But this book is packed with information in regards to who designed steels you interviewed you interviewed older knife makers you've interviewed newer knife makers you got a thing on salem straub you got a thing on Mareko momasi um i would imagine i didn't get to the part you got probably talked to your dad a lot uh we have to talk about your talk about your dad but it's this really interesting it's more of a history of of steel in the differences between companies using um knife steel to makers and it's 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 a kind of a wonderful. How did you feel that the difference was writing knife engineering to the story of knife steel? Uh, writing knife engineering was easy because I am just presenting information that I know. Where the story of knife steel is like, what did people think about steel in the 1960s? Like, what what did they care about knife steel? What were the popular knife steels? And so to learn that, you have to find sources that say what people were saying about knife steel in the 60s. You know, and so you know, you're trying to find sources for everything, you know, uh, and like what, what steel were people using? Sometimes they don't say. Uh, so there's also a full history of tool steel, basically, in this book. Uh, don't be scared. It's not uh, that frightening. But that did not exist. There is no book or article giving you the history of tool steel. So hundreds of hours of doing the hard history research uh, and interviewing a bunch of people. And so is way, way more work, probably twice as much work as huh. life engineering writing this book. Did you get a different, what surprised you the most writing this book? What surprised me the most? Uh, I mean, uh, there were a lot of surprises. My original goal, we'll, we'll take a step back. My original goal was I was going to do a couple of articles and a couple of YouTube videos on the history of knife steel. I had done some little sections, you know, like I do an article on 52100 steel and I'd have a little section at the top of the history of that steel. And it was a lot of work even doing those little sections. And so I thought, well, I'll kind of make an all encompassing thing where people can learn all these things I've learned and do it in a more uh, all-encompassing way, instead of just one little piece from one little steel. And and so I started working on that, and it just got bigger and bigger and bigger, and it got too big. You know, <laughs> I decided yeah. to do a whole section on the history of Damascus patterning and the history of of Damascus professionals, and that was almost a book by itself. And I'm like, dang, what am I gonna do with this? Like, this Damascus stuff isn't quite a whole book. This tool steel stuff is getting bigger. Uh, 
And I'm like, well, if, if I made it into a whole book, what would I do? And I'm like, well, then I'd have to write about Bill Moran and Bob Loveless. What could I possibly say about Moran and Loveless that hasn't been said a thousand times? You know, I'm not an expert on Moran and Loveless. Uh, I got to talk about, you know, like early 20th century pocket knife companies. I don't know about what Camillus and Case were doing in the early 1900s. I'm going to get stuff wrong. You know, they go to Bernard Levine for stuff like that. What am I even going to do? Uh, and so after I wrote this whole thing on Damascus makers, I interviewed a ton of them, probably 30 of them. I don't even know how many. And I knew a lot going in already just from interactions with my dad. And I'm like, okay, well, buy some books on Loveless and Moran. See if you can write chapters on Loveless and Moran. And if you can do that without looking dumb, then maybe you can write the rest of this. <laughs> so, uh, so I did that, and I'm like, well, this is going to be a book. Uh, I thought it was going to be a couple articles, a couple little fun videos, but it's just too huge. And then I, I wrote a book. It took me a long time. It took me you know, over a year, probably 1,200 hours. It was just so long. I'm, I'm so glad you mentioned Bill Moran and Bob Loveless because those are the two parts that I wanted to kind of bring up because they were so fascinating. It's such a departure from knife engineering because you are storytelling, you mm -hmm. know, and the, uh, the Bill Moran section was interesting because there, it seems as though that there is a real separation in terms of history of knife making where it goes from companies to individuals. Mm -hmm. It seems as though, I mean, I might be wrong. Um, when uh, this is a section called Bill Moran's reintroduction of Damascus, you started to talk about Damascus, and it's Bill Moran was. Uh, this is uh, just I'm going to re just read a segment. Bill Moran was intrigued by the legendary status of ancient Damascus blades, both for their beauty and reported properties. However, he felt that Damascus was the key to selling quote art knives, a category that hadn't been sold much before. Most of the markets wanted knives to use, not to display. I thought that that was a really interesting part that almost seemed like kind of welcoming in this kind of custom knife world and to, to where we are now. Yeah. And so the book is the story of knife steel, but if you don't know about the history of the knife industry, I actually think this book is perfect for getting into it. Uh, Cause I talk about, you know, production knives. I talk about the rise of the, the, uh, the custom knife industry which really started in the 60s. So, you know, there were there were knife makers out there, you know, most notably Randall. You know, uh, Randall made knives, Bo Randall, was the most and best known custom knife maker. And even then, he was sort of semi-custom knives, you know, with a lot of extra craftsmen. It wasn't Randall on his own. So Randall, he got popular in World War II. There were other knife makers out there, but they were pretty loose. None of them were really connected to each other. And uh, really, the custom knife industry was started by A.G. Russell. And I think a lot of people don't even know this now. So A.G. Russell, he was in Arkansas. He wanted to sell Arkansas sharpening stones. So he thought, I will get custom knife makers to uh, sponsor ads. So I'll put Bob Loveless uses Russell Arkansas stones in an ad. And there will be a little blurb from from loveless and show a little picture of a knife so what ag russell did is he he traveled across the u.s or part of it and visited all of the custom knife makers that he knew about and as part of that trip he talked to loveless and a couple other people and said like how can we get knife makers to join together 
and like have a stronger, you know, market here. And so A.G. Russell, he went to a major gun show. He bought up like 10 tables and he invited all of his favorite knife makers to come. And it was by doing this that he convinced all of the knife makers to come together and make the knife makers guild. And the guild is much smaller now, but the guild was very powerful, very big. It was the main center of custom knife makers throughout the 70s, 80s, even throughout a lot of the 90s. So H.G. Russell, even though Bill Moran and Bob Loveless were making knives before the Knife Makers Guild, before A.G. Russell, the reason why there are so many custom knives now is because of the formation of the Knife Makers Guild in 1971. Huh. I had no idea that A.G. Russell was a facilitator of this guild. Yeah, when I was a kid, we'd get the the A.G. Russell catalog in the mail, and it was great. And A.G. Russell, to me, was just a company selling knives but ag russell is a legend you know he uh without him this whole thing would not have started now of course there are always people that are are part of this you know ken warner he wrote one of the first major articles on custom knives in 1966 that predated the guilt uh so you know you can never put everything all on one person but ag russell he he was a major fundamental person in creating this whole industry and all of these specialty Knife companies, a lot of them also sprang out from interest in custom knives. And, you know, they, they upped their game because of custom knives. Um, oh, another forgotten company, people, is like Gerber. You know, Pete Kershaw and Al Mar both left uh, Gerber to make their own companies. Well, I guess even Al Mar is forgotten these days. Al Mar, he was one of the major inspirations for all these specialty knife companies. So companies like Spyderco and Benchmade, they were copying the model that Al Mar created and to some extent Gerber before him. You know, now Gerber people just know as, you know, a, a faceless company making knives that are maybe a little out of date. No offense to Gerber. I know there's people trying to correct that perception. Uh, so so yeah all that stuff is in in the book if you're worried that it's just about why there's four percent molybdenum in 154 cm like yeah that will be in there you will learn that but if you want to know you know where spiderco came from uh where the custom knife industry came from uh it's all in there that was one of the things that was interesting to me in terms of the idea behind it's almost like this kind of web of of in and out between this concept of what uh, Bill Moran was kind of saying of, of the idea behind, you know, usable knives that just people just wanted to use, like what Bob Loveless was doing. And then the concept of Damascus and these, he, he put in quotes, art knives, which is like, it's just interesting to see how that turned. Because now, I mean, you should ask your father, we got to talk about your dad. Um, how has the 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 role of Damascus changed in modern day in terms of what knife makers are using and the accessibility to it. Yeah, one of the surprises about Moran saying that he made it for art knives is that he also heavily promoted it as a super wonder steel with ultra properties. So in a way, it was almost promoted as a counter to Loveless and stock removal makers and 154CM. Because Loveless and his cohort were saying, 154CM, this is space-age steel. We're using uh, fancy furnace heat treating with cold treatments. You know, this is the future. We're using science and engineering. 
and making the new best knives ever. Now, Moran and people who worked with him, like Bill Bagwell, they were saying, no, the best knives that have ever been produced are ancient blades. It is through the study of these ancient methods and these ancient blades that you find the keys to high-performance knives. And so Damascus was like the culmination of this. Like, oh, Damascus is this mystical ancient material which had the best performance ever. And they would say things like, oh, it breaks apart like plywood. It uh, you know, was stronger than, than like a mono material. Uh, and that it would cut longer. He would talk about like, oh, Damascus just wants to, wants to cut you. It tries to grab you and bite you. And so they would talk about this, this magical material. And so there was a very like futurist versus past perception. Loveless and Moran were opposites in almost every way imaginable. You know, stock removal versus forging. Heat treating by eye, heat treating in a furnace. Uh, new stainless steels, old carbon steels. Uh, Damascus versus new wave materials. It, they were <laughs> in almost every way they yeah. were opposed. And this is the debate that has continued to today. So to get back to Damascus, Moran said you have to make your own Damascus. You have to forge it on your own. Uh, and stock removal Damascus is basically, you know, counterfeit. You know, you're you're not doing it right. And then uh, Daryl Meyer, he was the first to start selling Damascus to stock removal makers. And at first people were like, no, like Moran said, you have to forge this on your own. This is a forger material, not a stock removal material. And that perception changed over time and Damascus was widely available. People used it. And the medium also expanded, you know, from from just looking at a few simple patterns to the very complex mosaic patterns we have today. So there's a whole range, you know, stainless stock removal Damascus, buying Damascus, forging your own Damascus, intricate patterns, simple patterns. Uh, so I don't remember what your original question was. So, but Well, uh, the, the, now I want to get into Bob Loveless because okay. his story, that was another part of it that was so fascinating. I always, I kind of knew a little bit about Bob, uh, Bob Loveless, but not a whole lot. One of the interesting things was he just, he uh, went to the, uh, you write, you write, you have a, a part here where he didn't appre uh, he went to the uh, Institute of Design in Chicago and Loveless didn't appreciate the training there. Yeah. The Institute of Design was an outgrowth of the Bauhaus school, avant-garde, form follows function and all that. I began to realize what a phony bunch they were. <laughs> it was intellectualized. Everybody at the Institute of Design was interested in shopping centers and office buildings. I was interested in a particular architecture. Things like family dwellings. I was intrigued in the possibility of making mobile homes on a production line, but I got no encouragement from my teachers. I finally got mad one day and I quit. I didn't even check out. <laughs> he was a really interesting character, wasn't he? Yeah, he was kind of, uh, you know, he was, uh, from, from what I know, I never got to meet Loveless. Uh, but he, he seemed to be kind of a, a straightforward, kind of grouchy old guy for a lot of years. Uh, and... It, it, he was very smart. He was very respected. Um, but I was interested to read that about his thoughts on his design training because Loveless designs changed knives. Like when people saw his knives, they changed how they made theirs. Like, oh, mine are ugly compared to this. And they changed. And people copied Loveless designs for years. It slowed way down in recent years. But Loveless design changed everything. Those knives are so sleek and beautiful uh i'll throw a little shade on moran moran's knives were not near as pretty 
as Lovelace's. Th- this is my opinion. Fine. Uh, but, you know, Lovelace's designs were incredible. You know, there were Japanese makers for years that all they made were Lovelace copy designs. And uh, now copying is not so appreciated. For some reason, that was considered okay at the time. You know, just copy Lovelace designs. Uh, but his eye for design was incredible. What one of the things it seems like the the, the story of Bob Loveless is so fascinating, and his little his, the moments that he has. I, I guess he it's you wrote a part where it says Loveless is working on an oil tanker in 1953. Uh, he's not, um, and where he read an article in the True Magazine about Randall knives. Knives were used on a daily basis aboard the ship. Uh, I decided I wanted one. He visited Abercrombie and Finch, but found. Uh, hold on a second. Yeah, Abercrombie awesome. and Fitch didn't used to be a clothing store. It was a sporting goods store. <laughs> That's what he says. He I found the salesperson very unpleasant. He was a quote. He was kind of a snippy dude. Uh, I'm certain that my oil-stained denims pea coat and watch cap didn't really make me a typical Abercrombie and Fitch consume, a customer. After asking for a Randall, the clerk answered, "Well, we simply don't have any, and it'll take nine months to get one." The clerk didn't even ask if I wanted to put my name on the waiting list for a Randall Knife. It was evident he didn't want to be bothered with a young guy wearing working clothes of a merchant seaman. These stories of him just being like, oh, it's almost like, I don't want to say spiteful, but I'm going to say spiteful. It seems like a lot of the things he did were out of spite. And then it kind of goes into where he just, he got a taxi cab, got himself, a, went to a scrapyard, got a a, 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 a shot, a, a, a a, whatchamacallit, a uh, spring from yeah, a, a 1937, spring. a leaf spring from a 37 Packard. And he's and he made he made his own knife on board of a ship with a grinder and a clay wheel. Yeah, with enough anger, you can do anything. <laughs> spite, it, spite is an underrated thing. Doing mm-hmm. things out of spite is very underrated. But it just seems as though that Loveless, at the same time, had like a real chip on his shoulder about certain things. Yeah, he seemed deeply offended that like this guy wouldn't give him the time of day, you know, basically looking down on him, you know, like this isn't where you belong, son, kind of thing. Well, same thing with the 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 design school. With it, mm. it almost seemed as though, I mean, it, it always seems that he just. It seems like I, I'd be interested to know more about his growing up because I know you had written that he had joined the Merchant Marines at fifteen or something like that, and he forged his name and stuff like that. There seems to be like this, like almost as if he's got a. He's got a he's got a real axe to grind. Something. Yeah. Well, one thing I'd recommend throughout my book, I have citations for everything in there, all of the quotes, everything, and the references in the back. All of my favorite sources that I used, I put in bold. So any subject you want to learn more about, you just look for the bold reference. You know what was my favorite book on Loveless? You can see that from the Loveless chapter. It was. Uh, like logos of Loveless, something like that, from Jim Wire. And uh, so you can read all about Loveless's past. And so I'm hoping that one of the things people do when reading the book is like, oh, man, I really want to learn more about Moran or Loveless or whoever. And I'll give you a good reference to go to, you know, a full magazine article about Gil Hibben or whoever the knife maker is. Because uh, I can't cover everything in the book, obviously. So... I can't, you know, the interesting thing is, is that, you know, even on Knife Talk, we get a lot of messages about from bladesmiths and stock removal guys, stock removal guys write in saying they're tired of being like belittled because they don't forge and forging guys say, you know, if you don't forge, you're not really a knife maker. It seems as though that Bob Loveless really kind of elevated the stock removal game. 
Yeah, well, the whole reason why Moran wanted to start the ABS is because knife making was becoming all stock removal. You know, there were very few knife makers, and there was this burgeoning group in the Knife Makers Guild, and the majority of them were stock removal makers, like Loveless. And a lot of people were following Loveless, like, well, you know, Loveless, that's the way to go. He was the most respected knife maker at the time, a little bit above Moran, even. Hmm. And, uh, you know, th- th- I'm not speculating. There was literally a poll done in 1973 on who was the best knife maker, and Loveless was number one. <laughs> so wow. Then Moran was number two, and then it went down from there. Uh, and, and so people like Moran and Bill Bagwell and Bill Hughes and Don Hastings were like, well, what are we going to do to rescue this ancient art of forging? Because these stock removal makers are just taking over. And they keep promoting their fancy science engineering approach to things. And they're killing this art of forging. And so that was the impetus behind the ABS. You know, let's make an organization dedicated to promoting forging. We'll teach people forging. And we will grow this group of people slowly to today where, you know, it's a very large group. So it's a very impressive organization. Take me back to your father. Mm-hmm. Your father, your father Devin, who congratulations, you just got inducted into the, he got inducted to the Cutlery Hall of Fame. Cutlery Hall of Fame, it's an incredible achievement. I agree, I, it's amazing. I mean, I think he deserves it, but I never thought it would happen. It's a pretty limited group, some very legendary names in that list, and I just didn't think my dad would would get the recognition to be on such a prestigious list. Uh, so it's extremely exciting, you know, both for him, but also for me, you know, that he was able to be recognized in that way. Uh, you know, it, somehow it feels like I, you know, I'm a part of it, even though I'm, I'm not, you know, those were all his accomplishments. I had nothing to do with it. And I, I, I don't, I don't know how to explain my feelings better, but I was, I was very excited for him. And, uh, I just, but I, I think it shows, you know, his commitment to the industry, what he's done over the years, the innovations that he made, the people that he's taught. Um, and yeah, my dad is a very impressive person. How did he get his start in knife making? So he was interested in knives from a young age. You know, he had an uncle who made some little rudimentary knives. And then when he was 16, he was able to go uh, for a summer and work for a knife maker in Arizona named Bob Lofgreen. So he was able to work with him over the summer. And then by the time he was 18 or 19, he even won an award at the uh, at a California Custom Show, I think. We'll have to check my book for accuracy. Uh, for Best Knife by a New Knife Maker. Hmm. And so his, uh, his improvement in knife making was, was pretty rapid. You know, he was able to have that experience working for a knife maker. You know, just when you get a lot of hours in, you get better a lot faster. And then he went on a Mormon mission in Japan. And while he was in Japan, you know, everybody knew that he was into knives. And so they'd show him knives. Uh, there's knife making around. Like they would see craftsmen like polishing swords. They'd see people making kitchen knives. And so he was exposed to knives while he was there as well. And when he came back from his mission, he got married and he was working as a welder, as a fabricator. And uh, then he would, uh, he just was making knives and he started making some Damascus. He read from Wayne Goddard about cable Damascus. 
and uh, the Damascus just grew. You know, his his uh, his Damascus would fly off the table faster than the knives, and the Damascus just built. And, uh, you know, stainless Damascus is more attractive to stock removal makers than carbon steel Damascus is. And so he was a major innovator in that area. Not the first to make stainless Damascus ever, but maybe the one to popularize it in significant quantities for people to buy. At what, what time of, what, when, at what years were, was he making the, the uh, stainless Damascus for sale? Yeah, so one thing I've learned is that trying to get exact dates on things is extremely challenging. And asking a knife maker when they started doing something is uh, not often going to get you closer to the right answer. <laughs> okay. So my dad started making stainless Damascus somewhere between 1989 and 1991. So okay. it might have been 89, it might have been 91. I found quotes from my own dad where he gave both dates. Uh, I know that Wayne Goddard in a 93 Blade magazine said that my dad had been offering it for a while. So, yeah, late 80s, early 90s. And he was part of the ABS? Uh, he was not. He might have been like an ABS apprentice smith. So he and the ABS had a tiff about uh, using stainless for the performance tests. Hmm. And so he never advanced very far in the ABS. So, I mean, obviously the ABS has never had a monopoly on forging. And actually the majority of people selling Damascus are not master smiths or even journeyman smiths. Um, I don't know all the reasons for that. You know, the ABS is very good at teaching, but they also have some uh, old bylaws which have never been updated. And I do talk about that some in the book as well. Growing up for you, you you're uh, you're you're one of six. Mm -hmm. Your dad is established knife maker, mm -hmm. bladesmith, Damascus maker. Mm -hmm. When you're growing up, are you thinking about becoming a knife maker, or what's your relationship to how you're seeing your father? Yeah, so my early years up to my teens, I had little or no interest in knives or Damascus. You know, I would look at an A.G. Russell catalog and maybe uh, desire a knife here and there, but my dad's business was not something I ever cared about or thought about. That changed around 13 when my dad took me to a hammer-in and then some knife shows. And what happened at the knife shows is that I saw knife makers promoting their knives. And this was very interesting to me because they would talk about their secret steels, their special steels, their special heat treatments. I remember there was a guy with fillet knives at one of the first shows I went to, and he would bend them 90 degrees. And he'd say, this is because of my special steel and my special heat treatment, whatever it was. And so I was interested in both the engineering and science behind the claims they were making, but also some of the psychology behind the way they would promote things. And as I got older, I was as interested in the BS and the lies as I was in the truth, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's also, some of us refer to that as razzle-dazzle. <laughs> yeah. And so I would ask my dad, you know, hundreds of questions like, you know, why, why is this guy promoting this deal? Why does the guy say this is the best? Why is the guy triple quenching? Why is this guy promoting his normalizing? Uh, and then Dr. John Verhoeven, who's also covered in, in the book, he, he wrote a book on metallurgy for bladesmiths. And I read that book. 
And I got on the forums around 13, 14 years old. I started posting on there, learning on there. And so just it grew to where my fascination with the knife industry was really about steel and heat treating. You know, my nerdy brain latched onto the engineering aspects of knives. And at one point I did uh, play with the idea of being a knife maker some. Then I went to college and got busy and, you know, ultimately my my real interest is in the steel part of it. That doesn't mean I won't make any knives. I've sold a couple of knives in the past. But, you know, I'm not what I consider an artist or even an artisan. I consider myself an engineer. And that's really the part of it that I enjoy the most. As you're going to college and then you're obviously you're a doctor, you got a doctorate in this and you've written books and stuff like that. What's interesting to me is you're, you and your father have this relationship based on your careers that are, you know, your career is kind of like branched off of growing up and seeing your father and going to these hammer-ins. How was your relationship uh, as you're going through this? I mean, are you guys talking about heat treatment? Or are you, what's the, your relationship like as a doctor? Yeah, I mean, things did shift over the years. You know, when I'm 13, 14, he is the expert and I know nothing. Right. And then it became more collaborative as I got into my late teens. You know, I even wrote a couple of things uh, for his website on steel at that time. I was really into steel. Wow. I, I was debating in my teenage years on the forums about, you know, S30V and whether or not it's chippy or you know, what is the best hardness for this deal? So I, I was already interested in that in my teens, and I was already debating the internet, you know, along with all the other dummies. And then, you know, as I'm going through school, you know, then my dad, uh, you know, it, it becomes more where he asks me questions than the reverse. But wow. n- not always, because, you know, he will have practical experience that I don't have, you know. Uh, I'm really bad at spark testing, to uh to compare different steels if you're if you're familiar with spark testing you know you uh you grind off a piece of steel and you watch the sparks and based on the appearance of the sparks you can sometimes tell the difference between different types of steels to some extent so you know some of that practical real craftsman experience are things that I'm not that good at you know and so you know as much as I learn uh, you know, there's always more to learn, and I may know a lot more about steel than the average knife maker, but some knife makers still have things to teach me. It's I love it because you know it makes I made me you know getting ready for you to come on here. I, I started to think about you know my relationship with my father and stuff like that, and there were there were times where I could have gone into his business mm-hmm. and or uh, approximately. He was, uh, he was a pioneer of winemaking in the Hudson Valley, New York, considered one of the best winemakers in New York State. Hmm. Started in the 70s, and while I was growing up, I was involved with the winery, and I was learning, I was learning about winemaking and being you know, groomed almost to take the place over. Regardless, he married someone who wanted me, had nothing to do with me, and then I got basically you know, shipped off, which was really like difficult for me because I know now that if I had had the opportunity to kind of either work alongside my father, work kind of in parallel, I really think that it would have been, it would have been amazing. And so I'm almost, 
I'm envious. I'm not jealous. I'm envious of the fact that you have this kind of symbiotic relationship with your father. You're not just like, the hardest part is as a child of a parent to try to, you know, either you have to you know, be judged like them or better or worse. But the fact that you're able to kind of work in tandem was, is, was a pretty nice situation. Yeah, you know, there's different directions you can go. You know, like if we talk about Buck Knives, that company has passed, you know, from family member to family member. And it takes a certain skill and ability to be able to continue a pre-existing business. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, where for me, I did not continue my dad's Damascus business. I was inspired by my father, by the industry, and I took the area of it that was most interesting to me where I had the most to contribute and I pursued that. And so it's hard to say this without bragging, but in a way I'm proud that I was able to, f to forge something on my own. You know, well, that's I mean? the, that's the cool thing was you were able to kind of like, you weren't in the shadow of your father. You were able to kind of almost work to the point where you're almost in tandem. You know, and, and that's, that's even harder than most. I mean, if my father was alive today, I know that he would be very proud of Fader Knives. I know that he would be because mm -hmm. used, he was a painter. And that was the other thing is for me, my dad was an awesome painter, probably one of my favorite painters of all time to this day. Even after going to art school, even knowing a lot of painters, he's still one of my favorite painters. I knew that I could never be as good a painter as him. And I stayed the fuck away from painting. Mm -hmm. Pardon my French. I stayed away from it for the sake, for the simple fact is I knew that there's just no way I could even get, I could even touch him as a painter. And I had to move to the side a little bit and work on sculpture. But I know now that if he were alive, he would have loved what I'm doing. So I'm, I'm, I'm just envious of the situation that you're in with your father. And, and, uh, I think it's awesome. Yeah, it's a great situation. You know, we talk, uh, you know, almost every day, if not multiple times per week. So my relationship with him is great. Uh, you know, we continue to work together. We're we're working together on a big Damascus study right now for our Blade University class that we're going to give uh, in about a month now. What's it going to tell me all about it? So there's been uh, from the beginning of Bill Moran, well, predating Bill Moran, there are all these myths and legends about the performance of Damascus. You know, it's tougher, it cuts longer, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and so we are testing a bunch of Damascus steel combination. Some my dad made. I bought a piece of steel from Mareko Malmasi. Sorry, from Salem Straub. You got me connecting those two in my brain. I mean, they're the same. <laughs> they're, they're one and one and two. One and two of those two. Those I, two mental patients are one and two. Yeah, so I bought a piece from Salem Straub. I got a piece from uh, Cosmo Knives. That was an interesting one. He had S90V and 20CV, two really high alloy, expensive stainless steels. Uh, so anyway, I got a range of stuff. Oh, I bought a piece... Uh, from a guy I'd never heard of. Sorry, I forgot your name. 1084, 15, and 20. You know, he ain't basic, listening, don't worry. He ain't listening. <laughs> basic Damascus. Uh, and so we just bought a bunch of stuff. Uh, this is an expensive, time-consuming study, by the way. If you want to get your money's worth from a Blade University class, you should definitely come to this one. So we're going to do toughness testing, obviously hardness. We're going to do some microscopy, you know, look at those those layers, you know, where they're intersecting, how the... Uh, you know, the carbide structures are changing through the, the forging, how they cut at the end. It's going to be really cool. And that's going to be at the Blade Show in Atlanta this year. Yep, yep. We got a really crappy time slot, though. I'm mad at, I'm mad at you guys at the Blade Show. Not you. I'm speaking to that's the fine. universe. 
Uh, they fine. they get the, Friday at 10 a.m. That's a tough spot. That's a tough spot. That's Friday at 10 p.m. is 10 a.m. is a tough spot because that's when everyone's showing up. Yeah. So you know the peak buying time is right then. So the people that are going to buy are spending that time buying. The people that are selling are spending that time selling. So hopefully we get a handful of people there. But the the study is going to be awesome regardless. So, I mean that's. So what is actually, are you going to be lecturing or are you going to be actually grinding or what, what's going to happen? No, we're going to be uh, showing pictures, talking about results, uh, discussing how Damascus works, uh, why the different steels behave the way they do. So no, we're, we're not going to do a hands-on forging demonstration. It's just going to be presenting never-before-seen information from brand-new experiments on Damascus. So back to your, you and your father, the kind of the, the tandem thing. I've, I've, what I find interesting is, is when you mentioned that you, you, you were having a hard time even with the spark testing. You know, I've, I've always said that blacksmithing and bladesmithing and forging in and of itself is a performative act. There is a quality to it that takes finesse. It's not all calipers all the time. There's like feeling and understanding. And also there's like this, when I say performative, I almost mean like a choreography to a certain degree. I think that it's interesting that you've kind of embraced this very scientific data driven direction. And while your father is kind of like, he's obviously he has that too, but there's this, you know, when you're using a power hammer, you're using a press and you're making steel, there is some feeling as well. Well, on a little bit different tangent, what I like about Damascus is that there is an element of discovery to it. So, you know, you can understand patterning, you can understand how the steel moves, how the steel deforms, uh, but when you're making new Damascus patterns, you don't know exactly what you're going to get at the end. So you're like, okay, I'm going to try this. I'm going to make this manipulation. I'm going to stack the steels up differently this way. I'm going to try using powder around these elements. And so you come up with ideas, but in the end, it's kind of an organic discovery process. And so I think in some ways, it feels more like a true development, you know, as opposed to painting where you're like, okay, I'm going to paint this thing. I want this landscape to look like this. You know, if, if I paint a perfect painting it looks just like that landscape with the damascus i'm making a material that i don't have 100 percent control over and the way i manipulate it i know it will result in this or this or this but i cannot make the pattern look exactly the way that i want it to in some ways it's out of my control and so it is development and discovery when you're making new damascus patterns what does your father think of, I mean, since he's been making Damascus and since he's been involved with knife making for so long, what does he think about knife making in the present day? It's got to be, I mean, you think about, you're reading back to Bob Loveless and, and Bill Moran and you're seeing what's happened now. You, you covered the, the Montana Mafia and mm -hmm. you covered Josh Smith and all those guys out there and, the, and, and Don Fogg and all that. How do you think now with the rise of the internet, how does your father feel about knife making now hmm i mean my dad sees the knife industry as a positive place in general and he enjoys the knife industry he still likes selling knives he still likes making new types of damascus so i i don't think i think for most people they've seen the changes as positive or at least as benign 
you know, things evolve over time. You know, this style gets more popular, mid-techs get more common, production knives get fancier and more expensive. You know, stuff just evolves over time. And, you know, you can be an angry old man about it. I remember for years people whined about uh, tactical knives. Why is everything tactical knives these days? And now the term tactical isn't even used that much. But, uh, you know, this might be too much speaking for my father, but, you know, my dad still enjoys the knife industry. I would just think that now, I was talking to Marek on Knife Talk, and we were coming to the conclusion that now the world at large in this time in history probably sees more Damascus being made, pattern-welded steel, whatever you want to call it, than they ever had in the history of the world. Mm. Because you have this, because of the ease of the internet, social media, so many knife makers are are making Damascus. I would think that this is like almost, I mean, I want to say golden age, only just because more common people who are not in the, affiliated with knife making are seeing it more. Yeah, it's bigger than ever. I mean, part of that is Forged and Fire. Part of that is the internet. Uh, but you can also have a more intimate relationship with the company or the person you're buying from than ever before. You know, if I follow you on Instagram, you know, I see you sharing pictures, you know, with your family. You you show a how-to on how to do these serrations. You know, uh, obviously you're on these podcasts where you share a lot of details about yourself. And so I think selling yourself is more important than at any prior time. You know, hmm. maybe learning about who Loveless is might contribute to your knife buying in the past. But if you're a custom maker and you think that you only need to sell your knives at this point, I think you're making a mistake. I think people want to get to know you and, uh, you know, they want to buy you as much as they want to buy your product. And so I think that is a benefit, sometimes a detriment. You know, I think guys sometimes could scale back some... Uh, you know, religious or political talk. But on the other hand, you know, if that's the type of customer you're trying to attract, you know, I want to make sure that they have the same core beliefs or values right. that I have, then that is uh, easier to do than ever. I had a friend who started a bakery and I was helping him with the name and he, I came up with, I can't, he came up with a name that was fine. And I came up with the name that was way better. The name that I came up that was way better was I wanted him to name his company the Grainage Ditch. Uh -huh. Like I thought that was a great name for a bakery, frankly. And I mean, I was fooling around. And he wrote, he wrote, and he ended up coming calling it something else, a much better name. I was, I was obviously fooling around. He came up with this idea. He came up with this slug line that says, "Making good bread for good people." Mm -hmm. And I said to him, well, what about the bad people? They're not allowed to have any bread. <laughs> and it was like, it was like this strange, I always felt like it was just like everybody, you have to be a good person to eat your bread. Why can't you be a, you know, mediocre person? You know, mm -hmm. I think that that, I think that is a really interesting part of, of how we kind of look at knife making in general. It's like trying to find people that you can see, you know, you, you, you agree, have to agree with. Well, just custom knives, they're expensive. Just they have yeah. to be. You know, I can buy a cheaper knife from a faceless corporation, and it will be a little bit worse than the custom knife, sure. But I don't have to buy a custom knife. So That's for sure. So if I don't have a connection with the person making the knife, then why should I buy it? You know, it, 
it, you can make arguments, you know, about the artistic nature of it or the performance of it or whatever. But for me, if I'm going to drop a bunch of money on a custom knife, I, I want the I want the combination to be there. I want it to be performance and art, and I want to like the person that I'm buying it from. Speaking of steel, we have to talk about MagnaCut. Okay. Your, you, you created a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. right? A couple of years ago? You created MagnaCut. Uh, new steel you designed it you engineered it and it's taken off like like uh, one of the great things about it is the fact that the maker community the knife making community has totally like embraced it yeah but not only the knife making community i'm not only the custom knife making community but like spider co's uses it there's a lot of real like a big name companies that are using magnica tell me about magnica and the successes <laughs> well it's been selling really well uh, like you said, I, you know, I know the most about custom knife makers. You know, that's who I grew up with. You know, my dad was a custom knife maker. His friends were custom knife makers. And sure, you know, I, I interact with some of the production knife company people as well. You know, uh, I know Sal Glesser a little bit, you know, I can't say we're best friends. Uh, I, we will be someday, <laughs> but I don't even know who that is. You don't Sal Glesser owns Spiderco. Oh, so, all right. Well, there you go. So, uh, he's a really cool guy. So, uh, soon to be your best friend. Yeah. Yeah. We're getting there a little step we're, at a time. Uh, that's all it takes. Yeah. That's all it takes. So, when I made MagnaCut, I actually knew that it was problematic for custom knife makers. The reason being that it has a significant amount of vanadium and niobium. And vanadium and niobium carbides are harder than aluminum oxide, which is the most common abrasive in sandpaper. And so hand finishing MagnaCut is more challenging than a steel which is lower in vanadium and niobium. And, okay. and I knew that this was going to be an issue because it was already an issue in the past. So this was a, a big deal, especially with S30V. It was the new hotness back around 2002 when it came out. But custom knife makers largely did not take it up. And so Crucible introduced CPM-154, the powder metallurgy version of the old classic 154CM, because it was free of vanadium, and so it was easier to finish. And so I knew, actually, that MagnaCut could be more popular with production knife companies than it could be with custom knife makers. I didn't intentionally make a production knife steel, but I knew that to make the steel with the best properties, that it would be harder to hand sand. Uh, So anyway, all that to say, I knew that it had a possibility of being popular with the high-end production companies, and many of them have been taking it up, and it's extremely exciting. You know, when I can go buy a knife from Hogue Knives or whoever, and it's like 150 bucks in MagnaCut, you know, like, these are some nice knives. And seeing my steel on those knives is very gratifying. And uh, there's a lot of knives coming out. I don't even know about most of them in MagnaCut. Last year, when I went to the Blade Show, there was a giant poster for a new uh, case knife, you know, from old WR case right. uh, being sold exclusively through Smoky Mountain Knife Works. I'm like, why isn't anyone telling me about this? So, you know, I went and bought one. And there's just more and more knives all the time in the steel that I don't even hear about. So it's it's awesome. That's got to be a great feeling because I mean, I don't know how much how much time and energy went into creating MagnaCut. Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, 
you know, a, a lot of it, I definitely spent time, you know, a lot of it is, is just sitting there and thinking. Um, and for a while I didn't have any big ideas. So like there is software that can model the different carbides you'll get in steel based on composition and temperature. And this is used to help steel designers to design new steels. And so I would go plug in S30V and see like, okay, you know, it's got this and this. And then like tweak it, you know, modify it. Like what, what different things can I do here? And it always made it worse. I could never make something better than S30V. I'm like, well, what? You know, maybe that's just the, the optimal design. Maybe there's nothing better that can be made here. But I, I had the idea of eliminating chromium carbides, which we don't have to get into too much. But what made non-stainless steels better than stainless steels was that they only had vanadium carbides. If we talk about Venetus 4 Extra, CPM 10V, 3V, those steels, their properties were better than the equivalent stainless steels because they did not have chromium carbides. So I started playing around with the software and it, it really, the steel really fights you on trying to get rid of chromium carbides because stainless steels have a lot of chromium. So the steel wants, we'll say that anthropomorphically, it wants to form chromium carbides. So I kept playing with this modeling software, hoping that the modeling software is accurately predicting these behaviors and just trying to dial in the right chromium, carbon, vanadium, etc., to get it to the right carbide structure to match the best non-stainless steels. So eventually I found a, a space in the modeling software where it was showing that I could get this microstructure. Now, it wasn't only the software. I'd also done a bunch of heat treating experiments like on knife engineering and measured the microstructure of a whole bunch of steels. So I also had my own equations that I had generated based on experimental data for, you know, if you have this much carbide, you get this much wear resistance. If you have this much of this type of carbide, you get this much toughness. If you have this much carbon in solution, you get this much hardness. If you have this much chromium in solution, you get this much corrosion resistance. So I had to have all of this extra knowledge that I had generated on my own. I used that along with the software and I had this approach. Now I had a problem. I had a steel design and no steel company with which to make it. I work for U.S. Steel. U.S. Steel does not make knife steel. They do not have the facilities to make knife steel, even if they wanted to. So I thought, well, I've always had a good relationship with Crucible Steel in the past. When I was a teenager, I would go to the guys at the shows from Crucible and I would talk steel with them. I called Scott Devanna, who worked at Crucible at the time, and I would talk to him on the phone for hours. You know, uh, I would call and the secretary would be like, Scott's on the phone right now. And I'd be like, that's fine, I'll wait. And I would just sit there on the phone and wait for him <laughs> and then talk. Uh, now, Crucible has changed quite a bit since those days. They went bankrupt. They sold off their research facilities. And they still exist, but they are a different company than they were in the past. Uh, so I contacted who I knew, and I had to convince them that I knew what I was talking about and that this steel design was going to work as a knife steel and that it was going to be a big deal. You know, I told them, like, oh, these competing companies, they're advertising their third generation steels, and they are, uh, they are 
effectively convincing the consumers that their steels are better. And we're going to take that back with this new steel. And I presented, you know, this is how I know it's going to do what it's going to do. And then I just had to, uh, you know, try to sleep every night hoping that it actually worked. Because they used to have a research facility where they could make 50 pounds or 500 pounds and see if the steel design works. They do not have those facilities anymore. We had to make a full heat of steel to see if it would work. And how much is that? It's 5,000 pounds. Oh, you vault. So you had to make five. So your, so your test was 5,000 pounds of steel? Yeah, and that's actually small for steel, but fortunately powder metallurgy is a more premium process, and so it's smaller. <laughs> a full eat of a normal steel would probably be 20,000 pounds, 50,000 pounds. It'd be even worse. So how did you convince them? To go through with it, because I mean, you you would think, I mean, I'm as a, as a person, not as a like a, as a researcher, but as a business person, if you came up with me to about this, I mean, I'll, I would probably be skeptical, except for the fact that you've created a relationship with these people, and you also, you know, you you're a doctor. Yeah, I did have that going for me, fortunately. Which is good. <laughs> so, yeah, which is nice, as as Bill Murray says, which is nice. Yeah, so I I had never heard of such a thing occurring in the past. You know, people invent things. And they go to Target and they try to get a royalty agreement and stuff like that. But steel companies, they hire metallurgists and then the metallurgists make products for them. You know, they give the metallurgists a salary. The metallurgists go home at night and they eat dinner and they go to sleep. And then after 30 years, they retire. You know, metallurgists don't go to companies and say, I've got a new steel for you. It just doesn't happen. I've, I've never heard of it happening. And so I had to have a very convincing PowerPoint. <laughs> so once you, they made it and then did you have to, and then once they made the steel, then what do you do? How do you test it? Yeah. Well, fortunately I had already done a lot of that. So for knife steel nerds, I was testing the hardness and the toughness and the corrosion resistance and the edge retention wear resistance for a whole bunch of steels. I had and have the biggest database of knife steel properties that has ever been generated. Uh, huh. You know, before knife steel nerds, uh, there it was the wild west. People on the forums are just like, no, three V has the best edge retention. No, this steel is the best, and it just was completely nonsensical. There was no pattern to it. Somebody just going on the internet trying to research steels is just completely in the dark. It's just you know throwing darts trying to learn things. So I had already generated a lot of this data so i just put the steel through my same old tests you know uh i knew about where it should be heat treated from based on the modeling software so you know i'm like okay modeling software isn't going to be perfect so let's do a wider range and see where it ends up so you know you austenitize the steel at 1950 you quench you put one piece in cryo you put one piece in your freezer you put one piece on the table for room temperature. Then you do 2000, then you do 2050, then you do 2100. And then you get your hardness curves. You temper at different temperatures. You get your tempering curves. Then you see like, okay, here's like a good hardness range. You treat some toughness coupons. Then you break all those coupons and see how much energy they absorb for their toughness. Then we heat treat some catra coupons. I have a catra edge retention machine that I got by consulting with buck knives. They had an old one that they were going to put in the museum. And I asked them to give it to me instead of paying me money. So I had the catcher edge retention machine <laughs> to test the edge retention of the steel. And so then I could just compare it with my database of prior information. I knew exactly where MagnaCut slotted in. Easy peasy. And how did you come up with the name? 
Oh, that was difficult. So, you know, I, I probably ran through a thousand names along with my dad and uh, with my knife maker friend, Sean Houston, one of my knife maker friends. We, we named every name under the sun, stupid names, good names, bad names. Uh, give me five. I'm sorry. You've got to give me the top five good names and you got to give me a couple bad ones. Oh, uh, I, I can't even remember most of you, them. You remember something, but I, There's something I, I, sticks I will out. tell you that my initial idea was hypercut, not magna cut. Ooh, so this, this is the good. I'm not mad at that either. This is the good secret stuff. So hypercut was the name of a high speed steel, uh, which is designated M42. So just like we have M2, M4, blah, blah, blah. This was M42. It came out in the sixties. It was the first major 70 rockwell c high-speed steel and so the cut in hypercut referred to like machining you know like a lathe not right. uh not cutting with a knife but i liked that this was a historically significant steel you know just i wrote the story of knife steel i liked the history of how steels were developed so i knew about this old classic steel hypercut i knew no one uses that name anymore i wanted to use that name now crucible uh, they were giving me pushback, like, oh, people might be confused. I'm like, how are they going to be confused? This Nobody uses his name anymore. They're like, well, there's another name that's trademarked, and it's this sort of similar category. It might not work. I'm like, fine. You know, I'll come up with a different name. So, you know, we put every word we could think of in front of cut to uh, still, uh, you know, pay homage to hypercut. Right. And we landed on Magna. So Magna Cut. It's, it's such a good name. It is a good name, though I did have a guy once on forums say that I was trying to make it sound like MAGA Cut because I'm a big Trump fan, <laughs> which there, there is no political message in the name of Magna Cut, whether that good or bad. <laughs> never, da- never even dawned on me. Never <laughs> yeah. even dawned on me that, I mean, if it dawned on me that it, does it sound maybe close to like, you know, chewing tobacco? Man, I can see that, but not. <laughs> that's hilarious people are crazy i mean yeah. people are totally crazy i'm i know that you know a couple of other names that just didn't pass the muster uh, i need a couple I, more i that. really can't because i i do this i do the name thing with my business partner and i have a list of names and some of them are hilarious and some of them are ridiculous i mean look at baker forge and tool they named their etch and gator piss and it's doing hot it's hot cakes so i'm just imagining you had a couple of good ones yeah i mean we just we it's every combination of dumb words together you know mega cut mega max steel max uh well here's a bad one super cut but it sounds too much like supercuts. The, the barber. Yeah, the barber. <laughs> so that was not <laughs> you can't work. do that. Yeah. <laughs> but do you think that? I mean, how did so they figured out Magna Cut? I remember when you rolled it out. Do you think that how is the marketing? Because I mean, you got it. In, I mean, Josh Smith. Josh Smith has it in Montana Knife Company. Spiderco's using it. How did you? How are you able to roll it out? How did the marketing work? Yeah, well, Crucible and Niagara, Niagara Specialty Metals, they hot roll the steel and then distribute it. Uh, you know, their normal marketing plan is send steel to a handful of knife makers, uh, give some samples to the knife companies, and, uh, you know, we'll just sort of build it from there. Well, I had a pre-existing audience with knife steel nerds and, of course, more audience also from knife engineering. So when the steel is coming out i do my article on the steel 
And so this got sent out, you know, all over the internet. People are really excited about it. Laren says this is a breakthrough. I had built up enough reputation that I was believable. You know, I had all of these tests that I'd done too. Like, here's where it slots in. This is exactly the performance of the steel. A lot of steels are advertised like, oh, they're going to cut great. They're going to cut longer. But you don't really know. You know, it's just like, oh, I heard from this knife maker that it did well. And uh, I also did work with knife makers. So, you know, we had a couple of YouTube videos early on. Uh, Sean Houston, you know, he chopped a two by four with a knife. Uh, uh, Big Chris, he did some some chopping with uh, his MagnaCut knives. So, I mean, we did all that normal stuff. But yes, I mean, with humility, a lot of the marketing was successful because of me, that I already had a pre-existing audience and that I was respected and believable. That's got to feel good. <laughs> what did your dad say? What did your dad say when you told him about it's it's going to it's Magna Cut's going to work? Well, to back up one step even further, we had been working on a conventional steel, which still has not been released, which is called Niomax. And so I never dreamed I would be able to make a powder metallurgy steel through Crucible for all the reasons that we discussed about coming off the street. And so I was trying to make something through the backways where we just order the steel ourselves and we are working we are working with Alpha Knife Supply to try to make that happen. It's very slow. And that was happening even before Magna Cut, even though it hasn't come out. So my dad had worked with me on that steel. We made fifty pounds of it using a lab size uh vacuum induction melting method through a company that can do that. And he forged it out for me and we did a bunch of tests on that. And so, you know, we were excited about making these new steels from the beginning. And so, you know, he's with me through all this process with Magnica. You know, I'm telling him like, okay, I think I've got the idea. You know, I, I think this is the one. Like, this is the, this is going to be the thing that shakes up the whole knife steel industry. And uh, so, you know, then I'm like, okay, I'm going to go present a Crucible. I don't know what's going to happen. You know, so he, he's excited. He's with, with me there the whole time. That's cr- that, that, in his mind, that's got to be crazy. I mean, I grew, I raised this child. I'm a knife maker. I make my own Damascus. And then here's my son who grew up to make his own steel, but in a completely different way. Like the fact that you guys both in parallel make your own steel, but in different methodologies and different thought patterns, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. I have an 11 year old son. Uh, my baby girl right. just turned eight today. Uh, happy birthday. Yeah. Happy birthday to baby girl. Uh, and you know, my kids, they show flashes of, of ability, <laughs> of, of intelligence, uh, that they, they might do something or they might be boring, normal people like all of us. Uh, but I can't imagine at this point in my life, you know, my son doing something, uh, really great. You know, I, I'm not saying I can't see it happening, but I can't see him doing it right now don't put the pressure on him please (laughs) please he doesn't need it my grandfather makes steel my dad makes steel now i got to come up with a god with a with a name for some steel it's too much it's too much pressure on him let him do his thing he's only what is he eight you said yeah 11 11 he's 11 yeah let him watch some cartoonies on saturday morning don't worry about that yet yeah i'm just saying i you know things change over time they evolve so i'm sure he will my son will will impress me more and more until one day he's a fine young man I'm sure, I'm sure he is. Are there any other, now are you involved with Apex Ultra at all? Yes, yes. So Apex Ultra along with Tobias Hongler and uh, 
Oh no, I just forgot Marco's name. So Marco, whatever his last name is. And uh, I had an idea for a forging steel, you know, like a low alloy steel that doesn't harden in air. And they also wanted to make a steel for forging bladesmiths. And so uh, they came to me with some ideas on steel compositions. And they said, can we pay you to check these compositions and tell us like how they will perform? And I said, sure, I can do that. But I have an idea that I think is better than these ones. And so they said, okay, well, you're, you convinced us. Let's try it. And so what Apex Ultra is, again, this is a, a case where we look at steel history. I didn't talk too much about this, but Magna Cut is also an extension of steel history. I looked at what past metallurgists had done, and I extended it out. I extrapolated and copied what they did in a future direction. So with Magna Cut, when they developed S90V, they took S60V, they dropped the chromium, and S90V was better than S60V. S30V had the same chromium. MagnaCut had further reduced chromium from S90V. So it wasn't just that I knew lower chromium is good. I knew that reducing chromium was good, if that makes sense. So it's, yes. it's not just a knowledge of the metallurgy, but a knowledge of what past metallurgists had done. And I just copied them and extrapolated. E easy. <laughs> uh, so Apex Ultra, we did something similar. So there is a Japanese steel called Blue Super, or Aogami Super, I can't pronounce things in Japanese correctly, which had a combination of tungsten, so 2.2% tungsten, and vanadium, 0.4% vanadium. The combination of those two elements gives it a low alloy forging steel with good wear resistance. So you can just add more vanadium or add more tungsten and get more wear resistance, but the carbides get larger the more of an element you add. Tungsten and vanadium form carbides independently. And so if you have a combination of the two, the carbide size stays small, therefore giving you, you know, uh, good toughness, fine edges, for example. Uh, so I also knew about the steel 52100. It's the classic bearing steel used in knives. And I knew that 52100 with its 1.5% chromium it had better edge retention and better toughness than the comparable steel with no chromium, 1095. The reason is the chromium uh, becomes enriched in the iron carbide. So there's iron carbide, and some of the iron is replaced with chromium. That makes the carbides harder, and it also makes them coarsen more slowly so that they're smaller for better toughness. So I said, let's combine those two concepts, the 1.5% chromium of 52100, and the tungsten plus vanadium approach of Blue Super, and we'll make one Ultra Super Steel. And that became Apex Ultra. Another good name, too. Yeah, I can't take all the credit for that one. You know, we came up with that name together. And uh, Tobias and Marco, you know, they were there the whole time. You know, they were working their network a lot in Europe. The steel is made in Europe. And also we would work together on a lot of the experimentation. You know, they're forging and rolling out steel and machining coupons and things, and then I'm testing them. So it's definitely a group effort, and they continue to, you know, do a lot of the legwork on that steel, getting it sold, getting it produced. And uh, we came up with that name. 
what's next on the steel train for you? Are you working on anything else? I know you said you had something in the in the in the works with the Alpha. Yeah, Nile Max. Maybe someday that will come out. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I would like to make variants of Magna Cut, and when I say variants, I don't mean minor modifications. But Magna Cut was not just a single steel; it was also a new approach to stainless knife steels. So when I was talking about it being free of chromium carbide, that is what gave it the new superior properties. And then I basically chose the toughness-wear resistance balance. If you increase wear resistance, toughness goes down and vice versa. So I chose a balanced steel for MagnaCut. But we can make it less balanced in different directions. We can make a higher toughness version. We can make a higher wear resistance version. We can make a higher hardness version. We can make a higher corrosion resistance version. So just like, you know, there is S30V and S90V, a balanced steel and a high wear resistance steel, uh, we could make a high wear resistance version of MagnaCut, and it would be better than prior high wear resistance steels like S90V. So I would like to do that. We'll see if we can do it. Uh, you know, there's no guarantee that my next design will be just as successful as the original design. We might try it and it doesn't work. Uh, but yeah, that's the direction I would like to move in, but nothing. But to now announce. you're on the hook. Now you're on the hook because with the success of MagnaCut, they're going to think you're just churning out new steels left and right. Well, we don't want too many new steels, honestly. Uh, All right. there, there's been complaints from people that the rollout of MagnaCut was too sudden, uh, that in the past, the rollout was just naturally slow. So there were no supply issues. With MagnaCut, there was immediate demand. <laughs> the, wow. The steel sold so much. Uh, they tried to sell it on the website, and uh, they had to stop doing that because they said, we can't handle all of these orders. <laughs> they said, we're, uh, we're not those, doing this anymore. That doesn't sound like a problem to me. That sounds like good marketing. Yeah, so we, we want to have some space. You know, We want MagnaCut to breathe. We want it to take over a big chunk of the market for everyone to be happy with it and then say, look, we've got this new other product. It's not replacing MagnaCut. It's another steel with a different set of properties. And then uh, we don't we don't make too many people angry. Look at you. Dr. Laren Thomas. Knife engineering, steel heat treating and geometry. That is a book you must have. I'm telling you, it's worth it. I'll tell you why it's worth it. Because it's got it's got all the answers at the back. All the answers at the back. It's a great read. Um, I push people to that all the time. When people ask me, what's your heat treatment schedule? I said, go buy a knife engineering. I won't tell you. You Let Dr. Laren Thomas tell you. And then the new book, which is coming out, The Study of Knife Steel, Innovators Behind the Modern Damascus and Super Steels, coming soon, right? Yeah, hopefully in a couple of weeks. So keep checking my website. Uh, yeah, The Story of Knife Steel, it's going to be, it's an amazing book, you know, I'm I'm very worried about this book. I spent a lot Why? of time on it. Why? Because it's a book on history. You know what people don't like? History. Who wants to buy a book on history? Excuse me. <laughs> if but I read I mean you're talking to a guy who is not a very enjoy I don't enjoy a lot of things. I'm actually a miserable person. Mm -hmm. And when I was going through the PDF yesterday, I found myself really enjoying the stories of these different companies and different people. So, I think that respectfully i think you're wrong i think it's going to be great and you know this podcast knife talk we're going to be we're going to be pushing you hard will it be on amazon yes or will it be strictly from your website okay yeah i'm going to sell the pdf separately through my website 
and then I'm going to have a paperback and a hardcover. Who's going to want the PDF? Well, the PDF will be cheaper. So this book is 500 pages and in color. So right now I'm looking at somewhere between $55 and $60 for the paperback. And the hardcover will be approaching $100. So for All people right. that can't afford $55, bucks, 60 bucks, whatever it ends up being. Yeah, they're going to be paying like $75 for paper from the, for their printer. Yeah. <laughs> and then the laminated pages. And then the just go buy the support this guy. Ladies and gentlemen, go support Dr. Laren Thomas. If you don't buy a knife engineering, steel, heat treating, and geometry, get it now. And then when the new book comes out, you get it too. Yeah. So in, in a way, the story of knife steel has a broader audience because it's not just for knife makers but the benefit of knife engineering is that you know it it gives you uh it has a value proposition like i buy this and then my knives get better you know what i mean the story of knife steel is a fun book but it lets you learn about the innovators of the past how did they come up with these new things how did the steel industry develop how did the knife industry get created how did we end up here today so I, I think if people give it a chance, they'll learn a lot. They'll enjoy it. If you find uh, you know one chapter less interesting than another, keep going. There will be more interesting ones, I promise. There's plenty of exciting stuff in there. You know, it's a story. I believe. I'm going to make a prediction. I'm going to make a prediction. Okay. You told me. You didn't tell me numbers because I, I like that fact. I like that you didn't tell me strict numbers. I, I like the fact that you held it close to the vest. You said that you thought that knife engineering, we were hoping to do 1,000. You did a lot more than 1,000. I have a feeling... That the next book will the the next book will be as much if not more only because the people who bought the original one are gonna want something else and they're gonna know it's like Magna Cut everything you you're on the hook now everything <laughs> you make people think it's gonna be good so I'm for it I believe in it and I'm, you when you get the information you send it to me I'll we'll we'll run ads on this thing we'll run ads on Knife Talk we we you're very important into this community you've done a lot for a lot of people i know i am one of those people i appreciate all the stuff that you've done knife engineering is an awesome book you're a great guest you're always welcome anytime you want to whatever you want to come on you want to talk about anything you want you got an open book open door policy dr laren thomas knife steel nerds on instagram knife steel nerds on youtube knife steel nerds on the internet where else where else can we find you yeah those are the big ones all right, there you go. Well, thanks, man. I appreciate the kind words. Dr. Laren Thomas, ladies and germs, go get that book. Stop playing around, and we will see you next week. Dr. Laren Thomas, thank you. One, I, once again, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you. This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers. Makers.